And we are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. You're hearing a recording of a traditional dance performance by an indigenous community from the Kamachka Peninsula at the very northeastern edge of Russia. There are no roads or rail lines to the area, surrounded by mountains and the sea. The remote region can be reached only by water or by air. And in Julia Phillips' new novel, it is the site where two young Russian sisters vanish one afternoon after walking along the seashore. Disappearing Earth is not a mystery or true crime novel. There's no detective discovering long-held secrets among the townsfolk, no red herrings or final reveal, but a series of stories about women and girls of affected by and connected to the panic surrounding the loss. Julia Phillips' Disappearing Earth was recently named to the Center for Fiction's 2019 first novel long list. She's going to be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st, and with us now from New York to talk about it. Julia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you've studied Russian since you were a teenager, studied in Moscow. Why set this story in Kamchatka, a place many people have never even heard of? Well, to be honest, I hadn't really heard of it before I started researching a place to set a novel. After I studied Russian for so long and studied in Moscow, as you mentioned, I knew I wanted to go back to the country to write fiction about it. Writing fiction has always been my my ambition. Uh, so I started searching for a great setting. And I didn't know quite what that would be, but I had some parameters in mind. I wanted it to be someplace beautiful. If I was going to move to a place to live, I wanted it to be someplace picturesque, ideally. And someplace that was contained or a little smaller than the huge urban sprawl of Moscow. And also someplace connected to American history in some way or to Russia-American relations. I thought that could be a good entry point for me to come into a region with. Mm. And when I learned about Kamchatka, it was all those things and much more. Well, and I've seen pictures of it. It looks absolutely stunning, but also bleak in some ways. I mean, there's a beautiful volcano, but there's just a vast area. And it used to be a naval base for the for the Russians. So is that the connection between America and Russia? It is. It was a very uh, pivotal region during the Soviet Union. So for much of the 20th century, it was the base for the Pacific Naval Fleet, the Soviet Pacific Naval Fleet. And it was therefore closed to foreigners. No foreigners could enter at all. And, all, and Russians could only enter if they had special government permission. So I would, as an American, have been allowed to go there until the after the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was so highly significant and loomed so large in the American, especially American military imagination at that time. So it's interesting on this peninsula, which in a way is on the edge of the earth, so open to the elements, but there is a sense of being enclosed. You know, there's, I guess it was a crucible on some level for so long, and it becomes the the, the enclosure for this book, Disappearing Earth. We have Alyona, I hope I'm saying that properly. <laughs> uh, she's 11, begrudgingly looking after her younger sister, Sophia. Can you unwind what happens that summer afternoon? Absolutely. So the book opens, as you said, with those two sisters, very young, on the shore at the city center. Uh, Kamchatka has one capital city and w one really kind of urban center where most people, almost half the peninsula's population lives. And they're right in the heart of that city, talking to each other and hanging out. It's during their school vacation. And 
they end up meeting a man who has sprained his ankle on the beach there, and they help him back to his car. And in thanks, he offers them a ride home to their apartment, and they accept. But when they get in the car, he ends up driving past their home, and he keeps going. He tells them that he needs a little more help from them, and that's where the chapter ends for us. That's where we see that summer afternoon end. We don't know what's happened to them, but we know they're not taken home. Yeah. And what unfolds month by month, chapter by chapter, is not uh, forensics experts coming out and looking for the girls or a detective, but but it's about how their disappearance affects the women and girls in this place. There's there's gossip and judgment of the girl's single working mother. You know, why would they get into a stranger's car? There's a curfew. There's suspicion of, of a lot of different men. But no case is revealed. Did you set out to confound that very well-trod formula? I think I set out to reflect how increasingly it seems to me true crime actually unfolds. I think I'm someone who's a huge fan of you know, Law & Order SVU. I love a detective novel. I love a crime thriller. Um, but increasingly as I read the news or as I reflected on how crime or violence appears in my own life and in the life of people around me, it seems not to be a contained narrative of a victim, a perpetrator, and a detective. These sort of a tight focus on three people and all the breaks in the case are through those three people or through one person, a detective. It seemed to me more and more and still seems to me that how crimes unfold or how violence uh, ripples through a community affects the lives of many people and many people play a part in solving it or muddying the water um, having it remain unsolved there are so many moments of happenstance or chance or circumstance that drive the direction an investigation goes and so I wanted to reflect that yeah and we see some of the vulnerabilities that show up for people around that uh, two 13-year-old girls forbidden to see each other because one of their her mother is not married she's afraid um, or the other mother is afraid there's a controlling boyfriend monitoring his girlfriend's every move while she's away at university and these characters are all loosely connected but but so far apart there is there is this I don't know, a way that they, they want to connect. In fact, one says that the closer you get to someone, the more you lied. What is, what is the price of connection for, for some of these women? It's challenging. Connecting with each other creates a lot of vulnerability and a lot of risk for many of them. And yet, over the course of the book, as we meet more and more characters and begin to see the ways that they overlap and the information that one knows and another doesn't, or the clue that one might have if only they knew the context that the other one could provide, we see that engaging in that risky connection is ultimately what will allow this community the chance to heal, allow these women an opportunity to move forward. Mm -hmm. and, and that also very much reflects to me what uh, I perceive in life, that, that connection, empathetic connection is so challenging and yet so necessary. Yeah. And there are other divisions here, geography and ethnicity. The mm. two sisters are white Russians. They're young. Uh, characters observe that their disappearance was treated very differently than that of a 18-year-old woman, Lilia, an Even young woman. First, a little bit more on the Even people. 
Yes. Uh, so the event people are an indigenous Siberian group. There are indigenous Kamchatkins who have been in Kamchatka, the peninsula itself, for tens of thousands of years. And there are some characters in the book who are, for, are, for example, Koryak or Edelman. Those are indigenous Kamchatkan peoples who have been on that territory for a very, very long time. Kamchatka was colonized by ethnic Russians, so ethnically Slavic people from the sort of Western Russia, more European regions in the 1700s, and Aven people also arrived in Kamchatka, so indigenous Siberian people, in uh, around the 1800s. So there have been these waves of migration into the peninsula uh, that have brought very different ethnicities and cultures and backgrounds and histories into, as you said, this crucible. Yeah. Um, did I say it right? Is it Aven or Iven? <laughs> I say a Ven. Okay. Yes. All right. So there is this one character I just absolutely fell in love with, Shusha. Um, she is, she, they call her at college, you know, she goes away to the big city college. They call her one of the herder's children. But there's a description of herding life in her family on the tundra that is just startling. Where, where did you get that? I am so glad that you love her because I love her too. She's one of my favorite characters. And uh, her experience, her memories of hurting, a lot of the research I did for her story came through embedding with a group of herders in Kamchatka myself. I, I spent um, a few weeks traveling with a group of reindeer herders in the center of the peninsula. They were extraordinarily generous to me and and really went above and beyond in opening up their lives and their work and the challenge of their day-to-day and letting me witness that and take notes. It, it was a really special thing that informed so much the experience of Susha in recalling, for example, that character, her grandparents, her father are herders and move nomadically with a, a herd of their own reindeer through the peninsula and have done so for generations. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We're talking with Julia Phillips about her new novel, Disappearing Earth. She's going to be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Sunday, September 1st. Well, this brings up a difference in the old ways and contemporary life in new Russia, you know, post um, the post-Soviet Russia. And there are some people who are nostalgic for the Soviet times. In fact, one says this could never have taken place in Soviet times, you know, the, the abduction of the girls after it becomes really big news in the city. What is going on there? I think it's hard for an American to read that and think, really? You you, you liked life in the Soviet times? What was the appeal? <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating because it is such a prevalent, and I would say uh, for a generation of people who recall the Soviet Union, a mainstream point of view, a, a desire to return to the Soviet Union. Um, I think it is very it might be easier to understand in Kamchatka than it is in many other regions uh, for from an American point of view. Kamchatka enjoyed a lot of national prominence during the Soviet Union. It was a military base and its economy was bolstered by that. It had food when other people didn't have food. It had electricity when other people didn't have electricity, other regions in the country. And it was uh, as... I heard many reindeer herders actually refer to it. It was a golden age mm. of stability in recent memory. And that stability 
completely vanished with the fall of the Soviet Union. An economy was taken away, a national identity was lost. It's something that was unusual for me um, and hard to picture. And yet, as I learn more and more recently about the, the fallout from the Civil War in the U.S., I understand more and more how the feeling of loss for those who were in power can continue for generations. You knew once or you're told by your parents that once you were on top and you don't feel on top now and you want to go back to that time. Yeah. Uh, another character, I actually maybe the same one says, now we're overrun with tourists, migrants, mm. native this sounds like that could be, you know, apart from the Soviet history, be happening in a part of rural America that was on the coal belt or the rust belt. Is there, did you recognize that when you were there in Kamchatka? Yes, and indeed I would say, <laughs> sometimes to my detriment, it was yeah. the only thing I, I recognized. I, coming from an American filter, being someone who grew up in America, whose home is in America, so much of what I perceived in Russia and in Kamchatka was contextualized by my American understanding. And when I was in Kamchatka, seeing the um, tensions, the particular tensions of this place and really unusual tensions of this place being a, a territory that had been totally closed and then in 1991 became open, that is a fascinating and unusual perspective. And yet the the nostalgia that people were voicing, the um, racism that people were voicing, all of that seemed to me to be profoundly reflective of and parallel to the America that I know. There's also, it seems like a the difference in the, the two young Russian girls who disappear and this other uh, native girl, Lilia, there is a assumed purity, right? When you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're a young girl, you're, you're no experience in the world. Yet Lilia was looking for a way out. She was sexually active. You know, that that's the assumption that everybody makes, that she found her sort of ticket out of here, although others have other theories. And in, there's a way that women here are considered... Uh, even even the witness, the one witness to the, seeing the two girls get into a car is considered untrustworthy. Mm. And I don't know if that is a condition that are you just reflecting on the condition of women in general or in this kind of confined place? To me, it is a condition of women in general in uh, a society that is a patriarchy. Russia is an extremely, contemporary Russia is an extremely patriarchal culture. And I would say that America too, or at least the America in which I live, is an extremely patriarchal culture. Um, in that men are in positions of power, men are in positions of authority, and women are continually told that they are less than or, or have different talents that don't include uh, leadership or uh, the ability to be in control of their own lives. To me, that is is very much a, a constant in the US. And I think certainly thinking about crime narratives, we see it so frequently, both in fiction and in fact, um, how 
victims of violent crimes, gender-based violence, are second-guessed and uh, minimized, and how those women around them are told over and over again, see, this is what happens if you don't do X, Y, and Z correctly. You need to be more careful. You need to be more safe. You, Violence can happen to you at any time. I feel so unfair asking you this question when we have 30 seconds left. Okay, maybe a minute. What is it, what it's like for you, you know, a lifelong Russophile, to witness what's going on now with evidence of Russian interference in American elections? Can you wrap us up with that? Yeah, it has been really fascinating and really illuminating. And I think it's taken the, um, it, it's turned a crush into a more mature appreciation. Hmm. For so long, I loved Russia in great part because I thought, oh, America and Russia are so similar, but we're two sides of the same coin. We've, we've developed in these different ways to the same tensions of the Cold War. Now I look and say, oh, America and Russia are so similar too similar. In fact, we're intermingled in a way that I don't want to be as an American. I would prefer some more separation. <laughs> Well, Julia, I want to thank you so much. We're going to leave you with the, the remotest, iciest music I could think of. This is Sigur Ros, as we thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Julia Phillips will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival to discuss her debut novel, Disappearing Earth, on Sunday, September 1st. You're probably going to be hearing a lot about it. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our senior producer is Amy Kiley. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks for spending some time with us on Second Thought. <laughs>